And we'll look into our study. Father, we uh, are thankful for the opportunity to spend some time around the table to enjoy some food. We're thankful for those who took time to get some things ready for us tonight. We're thankful for the fellowship around the table and um, been able to uh, be encouraged by the things that you're allowing in our lives, the opportunities. And we think of some of these individuals that have been mentioned already this evening that are dealing with illnesses, especially those with uh, some bad bouts with COVID right now. And uh, just ask for your mercy, that they would recognize, be able to see your mercy in the things that are going on, to be able to remember who you are in the midst of their circumstances. Uh, and we will uh, praise you for that. We're thankful for your word. ask that you might help us to uh, uh, appreciate the things that are in your word tonight. And uh, thank you for this. And amen. Um, we're going to be in John 8, but where I want to go, so if you're in John 8, if you want to keep your finger there, I want you to go back to John 1 for a minute, and I want to review one of the key verses that kind of sets the tenor for the Gospel of John. In John chapter 1, in verse 17, it says, But the law was given through Moses, the grace and the truth came to be, there's a difference between given, didomi, and Ginomai come into existence. It came grace, the grace and the truth came to be through Jesus Christ. And when he's talking about the grace and the truth, he's not saying just grace and truth in general. He's talking about grace and truth as a specific way of life. And he says, Jesus Christ is the one that brought those into existence. And the, and the importance of that is, is if we, uh, we're back in the context of verse 14, it says the word became flesh and it, dwelt or tented out among us, and we looked upon his glory, glory as one special one from the Father, full of, now he doesn't say the grace and truth, but just grace and truth. And then he says, the grace and truth, his way of life came to be through Jesus. So what he's telling you in verse 14 is that as you're reading this book, we told you at the beginning, when you read through John, John expects you to be recognizing, paying attention that you're going to see examples of Jesus demonstrating grace and truth. We're going to come tonight to uh, a set of verses in the first part of John 8. John 8, and it's the last, technically the last verse of chapter 7 through verse 11. This is the woman taken in adultery. Including the verse, verse 53 of chapter 7, it says, And they went, each one to his house. Verse 1 of chapter 8, and Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. That's where he's going, because he doesn't have a house there. He's from Galilee. He's down here visiting. So he goes out and spends the night out there on the Mountain of Olives, which is just on the east side of Jerusalem. And at dawn, or very early, he comes into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat there, and he was teaching them. And we have this situation in verse 3, in which the scribes and Pharisees, it says, they lead a woman to him or bring a woman to him that was taken, caught, uh, uh, which was caught in the act of adultery. And they stood her in the midst and they said, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses has commanded that such a one should be stoned. What do you say? John adds, but this they were tempting him. It's a negative word for a test. It's a test they expect him to fail. They expect Jesus to fail this test so that they might have something to accuse him of. But Jesus stoops down and with his finger writes in the ground. 
they're continuing to question him. And so he stands up and says to them, the one that is sinless, let him be the first one to throw a stone. And again, he stoops down and writes in the ground. And the one having heard, and the ones that heard this then, they began departing one by one, beginning from the oldest. And the woman was left alone in the midst. And Jesus stands up and says to the woman, where are they, those that condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord, not one. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. These verses from verse 53 through verse 11 are missing from the oldest copies of the New Testament in Greek that we have. And as a result, more and more modern scholars are suggesting these verses shouldn't be in your Bible. They may be a tradition, but they're not actually part of the text. Okay. May I make a comment right now? Go right in. And since the modern scholars count the oldest manuscripts as the most important, we should trust the modern scholars the most. <laughs> Well, that's really interesting. The modern, yeah, the modern versus. So, so this is this is this is what we're. we're I'm just going to go through some details. I think that, that was sarcasm. It's yes. definitely yes. sarcasm. They, they want to put emphasis on the oldest, yet they're the newest. Yeah. 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 The earliest, the earliest copy of the New Testament in Greek that contains these verses. The earliest copy that contains these verses occurs in the late 4th century, okay? The very late 4th century. Uh, or some say maybe even the beginning of the 5th century, if they really want to push that out there uh, a little bit. So they say these, old, these older manuscripts, of course, they're better. They would say older is always better, which is not always the case. Older is not always better. Um, and we're not here to make a case for older is not always better. Um, the reason they think older is better because they think it's closer to when it was first written. But let's, let's give this as an example. Two of the oldest manuscripts that they had for a long time, from the 3rd and 4th century, the oldest ones that they had for a long time, those two, you would think, would actually be really great together. But they have tremendous amount of difference between each other. And they're probably and they're probably less than fifty years apart, and yet they have a lot of discrepancies, not only from the rest of the New Testament manuscripts, but from each other. And it has been suggested, and again, I'm trying not to make I'm not trying to get caught up in talking about the Greek manuscripts a ton, but it has been suggested, and I think that there's legitimacy legitimacy to this that some of the reason that we they have some of these older manuscripts is that they're not like. Um, Oh, Josh is going to leave me disappointed tonight because he doesn't have his right Bible with him. I was hoping he'd have the one that he uses on Sundays, the one that if he picks it up, pages are falling out of it. That's the one that pages fall out of? Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, this one, can you, can you tell where my fingers go most of the time on that Bible? Can you see that dark mark on there where my fingers have been handling that with grease for almost 30 years, as disgusting as that is, finger grease, like this? And this one, the cover long ago, I've had this one since I was in seminary. So I bought this one in 87, and I had to rebind it because it was falling apart. And I've had to re-glue and, and stitch it and fix it back together. Um, so in other words, you know, if you use something a lot, if something is good and you respect it and you put it to a lot of use, 
You wear it out, right? But if you have something to say, if you walk into a library and you find a book that is in pristine condition and the book is 100 years old, chances are hardly anybody has ever picked it up and actually used it. And it has been the suggestion that one of the reasons that some of these really old manuscripts were uh, lasted as long as they did was because people weren't using them. They didn't get they didn't get nearly as much use. Okay. So having said that, so having said that, there was a man by the name of Papias. Papias is was a student of John, the man who wrote, wrote this book. And Papias writes right around 100 A.D. We, the only thing we have left are fragments. From He wrote five, five books. And we have fragments from those five books that are, that we don't even have the fragments, pieces of the fragments. The fragments are recorded by other people quoting what he said. So there are other people from early, early on that re record what Papias says. But we have, have yet have not found Papias' documents. Okay. Papias says that John talks about the woman that was guilty of many sins from John. And we don't know for sure, but most people think that people, has put it from early on, people thought that Papias was referring to this woman here. Okay, So we have Papias, right around 100 AD, referencing this account. Number two, Jerome, who translates Greek into Latin. Okay, Jerome. Uh, Catholic Church has for years used the Latin Vulgate. They have more modern, updated versions of that in Latin. But originally, it started with Jerome. Jerome, writing, he, he translated the New Testament. He started a little around 380, finished just a hair after 400. So about 20-year period, it took him to go through and translate the Bible, the whole Bible. Jerome said, so think about this. We're right around 380. Jerome says, these verses are missing in a number of Greek, in, in some Greek Bibles. That means by saying that these verses are missing in some Greek Bibles, that those verses existed in some Greek Bibles. Jerome knew they existed in some Greek Bibles, but he also acknowledged that they were missing in others. Augustine, Augustine of Hippo, also from Egypt. Augustine of Hippo, he says there were lots of, Augustine is writing also, um, at the end of the 4th century, he's kind of a contemporary to, to Jerome. And Augustine says, or Augustine, if you're that person, Augustine, he says that a lot of people took these verses out of their Bible. They cut them out. They removed these from their Bibles because people in Egypt, pastors and men, thought if you kept these in the Bible, it would tell their wives that it was okay to cheat and committed or commit adultery. And so they were cutting it out of the Bible for that reason. That means Augustine says he knew that they were part of the Bible and he knew people were intentionally taking it out. Censorship. Censorship. They were censoring it. They didn't now like you it. Gotta wonder, okay, it tells about the woman and she's caught in the very act. So maybe the men that have that written wanted it out of there because they didn't want them to know. Maybe. It shows a perspective on the men on that at that time. I mean, it doesn't say go ahead and keep doing it. It says go and send no more. Right. But yeah. it shows their perspective. 
that they don't that they don't get it. It's like, oh, if you can get away with it once and told to go and sin no more, that meant that, yeah, just wink at it. Jesus doesn't wink at it. <laughs> now, the verse I started with over in John chapter 1, that John says, when we watched Jesus, we saw him full of grace and truth. Of all the stories that we have recounted in the Gospel of John, this is my opinion. Now. You don't have to take it as my opinion, but this, this is my opinion. This is the most. This is the greatest example of Jesus demonstrating grace of any other of any account that we have. There's a lot of great counts of things that he doesn't hear, but this one is like the epitome of grace. I think this one is even, to some degree, in my opinion a little stronger picture of grace as we understand it as New Testament way of life than the healing of the, the lame man at the pool of Bethesda in chapter 5 who doesn't appreciate it. Because what does grace tell you? Oh, you sinned? No big deal. Grace doesn't really tell you that. Grace says no. Say no to it. Don't do it anymore. That's what grace tells us. Essentially, grace teaches you to say no to ungodliness and worldly lusts, but to pursue righteousness. <laughs> oh man, I can't believe I, this is like my favorite verses, and I can't think of it there. But but anyway, Titus, it's Titus chapter two, verse twelve. I just am drawn a blank to finish on the verse, but grace teaches us that. Yes. Would, you, would the woman be saved like right away after he had Because technically she was saved. Um, that that's the whole thing we don't know. Does, is is she saved as a result of this, or is she not saved as well? That that's one of the things that's hard for us to know. Um, there are well, we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I was going to chase down another rabbit trail, but we'll stay with. No, it doesn't. But his closing statement, and I think that this is also important. If you look in there at John eight eleven, she said, "No one, Lord." And Jesus says, "Neither do I condemn you." This is the word that Paul uses in that key verse in Romans eight one that says, "There is no for those who are in Christ Jesus." That's the essence of grace. There's no condemnation. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, even if you do sin, you're not condemned because God always sees you righteous in Christ. Does that mean God might not discipline you? No. You might get a licking. You might get a spanking from God. Uh, but he's not going to condemn you. You are still fully and completely saved for all time and eternity. And I, that's to me. It, to me, I can see why Satan would move people to be afraid of these verses, use fear, and excise these verses from some texts, because it is just one of the greatest pictures in this book of Jesus demonstrating grace by how he lived. Now, there's one other little thing in here, and we. I'm not going to. I'm not going to say that this is the case. But when he stoops down, there's been a lot of people that have. There's tons of people that have conjectured, what was he writing? Was he, was he writing the Ten Commandments in the dirt? Was he writing some of the sins that some of these men were guilty? It, well, that doesn't tell us. And if it, whatever we might suggest, it's going to be pure conjecture because it doesn't say. It just tells us he's just, for all we knew, he was drawing Josh stick figures in the, 
in the, the sand. Okay. What? I thought I I thought about fixing your little stick figure up here for you, Josh. But I thought, no, I like that guy. We're gonna let him. We're gonna let him run there. That's good. So anyway, but this is this. I, so I'm just trying to point out. You're gonna run into people that are gonna tell you that these verses shouldn't be there, and I think that there's good evidence that they should be by the very fact that people like Jerome and Augustine actually said these verses were were actually not, were missing from some Greek text, but that also meant that they were in some. And Augustine says people were intentionally taking it out of their texts. And the manuscripts, by the way, from the manuscripts that are missing these verses, they're from Egypt, where Augustine was. Okay? So where, where, where he ended up spending some of his time being familiar with some of these things. So... Um, a good, a good, to me, a, a very good uh, demonstration. And Augustine was about the same time as Jerome. Yes, they're 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 very close. Yeah, in on the. They knew they knew people were doing that at the time. Yeah. Did he know like the certain people that were doing it? Because it seemed like people that were. Well, I. I don't know. It just all, all I know because I've I've gone back and I've read like three or four places where Augustine actually makes reference to this, and and I read his material where he actually says people were excising it or omitting it from their copies. So if they were actually having a copy made, they made sure the person didn't copy these verses. Now I'll give you one other little interesting uh, tidbit on this. There was a, a English textual scholar back in the 19th century in England. I said English, okay, so redundant. His name was Jean Burgon. And Jean Burgon did a number of work on things. He talks about the last verses of the book of Mark. I've got a whole book in my upstairs on the last uh, verses of the book of Mark. But this is also, he also has uh, kind of a short pamphlet on these verses here. And one of the manuscripts that people cited was what what's called Alexandrinus. A in the when you look at the textual manuscripts, they give it the designation A. But Alexandrinus, that's talking about Alexandria, Egypt. And uh, John Bergon says about Alexandrinus, the problem with that is when they say it's not here, is that the pages are missing that these verses are written on. And Jean Bergon did something which a lot of people have done. So he's not the only person that's done this kind of thing doing textual criticism. He's gone back and he's counted how many letters are in a line of text on the pages before and after the missing page where this would be. And he counted so that he could figure out with what's supposed to be missing, if you use those letters and you figure out the average per line, how they wrote, that in fact, one of the things he says is on the one page, and I should have gone and looked this up because there's, there's a website that's really fun to look at, that you can actually look at photographic copies of all these manuscripts. So I could have gone and looked at Alexandrinus and seen her. Photographic copies on my um, computer, thanks to Dan Wallace from Dallas Seminary and his crew that travel all over the world collecting these. But you can see that, and he says the lines at the top are doubled up. In other words, they crammed more lines in than they normally would have done. And they've done that on the page following to make, it's like they were making more room on the previous page. And he says, a combination of that and counting up the letters, they've got more than enough space left on the pages that are missing, the pages that are broken out of that text, to account for these verses. 
maybe not the entirety of these verses, but the majority of them, unless they, you know, that, that's a general calculation. And it takes a little bit of work to actually count letters and figure out, you know, where, this, where these things would fit. But it's something that you can do and you can say, boy, if they follow the rest, the way the document has been before and the way the document is after, they're going to have this much space. And they didn't leave space like that after manuscripts when you're writing. They just kept going and they just kept going. So uh, there's some evidence from uh, Jean Bergon as he is arguing, and he also cites these other guys, Papias, Jerome, Augustine, and some others. And one of, the things, one of the other things they say is church fathers don't quote it. Now, church fathers were people that wrote and sometimes quote from this. And he says that that's actually dishonest because there are some church fathers. They're just not maybe the more famous church fathers that made it into the, to the book, the Antinician Fathers. That is the fathers that preceded the Council of Nicaea. And uh, he said they just didn't make it in there, but we have them. We do have accounts of those guys, and we have a couple of them that quote from this, make reference to it. So anyway, there's good evidence, and I think it's an important text, and it is going to, it's going to kind of lead into this following discussion where Jesus has just demonstrated grace, and now he's going to demonstrate uh, from that grace, uh, when he says, go and sin no more, he's actually going to lay down a promise <coughs> that these people probably would never have fully understood, but you and I, as reading this with hindsight, John's first readers, reading this around 90, 95 AD, they would have understood exactly what Jesus was saying. So let's put in and let's read through the balance of this text with some pauses along the way. Verse 12. Then again, any comments before we move on into the balance of this passage? Okay, so verse 12. Then again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. I am, by the way, that's his Old Testament name from Exodus 3. When Moses says, who, who shall I tell them sent me? What is your name? What am I going to tell Israel when I go back? And God says, tell them, I am that I am. Tell them, I am sent you. Well, that's what Jesus is saying. He does this many times in the book of John. And he says, I am the light of the world. The one that follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light consisting of life. See, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the very moment that you believe, what's one of the things you get? You get eternal life. And that eternal life is light. In other words, it's something that you actually can live out. It's not just living a long time. That's not eternal life. It's living a different quality of life. Josh has mentioned that a few times in the last couple of weeks. You're going to live out a different quality of life. And that life, because it's invisible to other people, other people can potentially see it. It's like Christ's life. It's light. It's something they can see. They can see you live eternal life. Okay. As an aside, just chasing an aside from the Gospel of John and from 1 John, what is one of the, what is one of, it's not the only, but what is one of the chief ways that you can demonstrate or live out eternal life? Love. And people can see that. They can see acts of love. They can see you lay down your life for other people in love for them. And so they can see eternal life. So you get that. Jesus is the light of the world, and you get to have this life that is also light that people can see. Therefore, 
the Pharisees said to them, well, you're testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus said to them, if I testify about myself, my testimony is true because I know where I came from and I know where I am going. You don't know where I came from or where I go. Where did these Pharisees come from? They did, but now it's it's the next day. He's back up at the oh, temple okay. the next day. Okay, so yeah. So, yeah, so they left. What? It, yeah, it says in verse 2, it was early dawn, and he came into the temple, and the people were coming to him. Okay? And so the scribes and the Pharisees bring the woman to him and accuse him. So, then this ends up. Now, we don't know that verse 12, there may have been a gap in there. that it, There might have been a space of an hour or two. That's right. That's right. That's one of the reasons that people think verse, it's one of the reasons they argue, well, this, these verses before can't be here because those guys all left. But we don't know when it says in verse 12, then again, he spoke to them. We don't know that he speaks to them immediately in the same minute. This could have been an hour or two later that these guys are up there still milling around. So, so Jesus says, you don't know where I've come from. You don't know where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I do not judge according, I, or I do not judge anyone. If I would judge, though, my judgment was to be true because I'm not alone. But I and the Father who sent me. In other words, there's two of us that, are, that would be judging. And even in the law, it stands written that if the, the testimony of two men is true. So if I and the Father agree on judging a thing, then we would be true in this. I am the one testifying about myself. And the father that sent me also testifies. Therefore, they were saying to him, well, where's your father? And Jesus says, well, you don't know me and you don't know my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father. And he spoke these words in the treasury. So the first part of this happens, he's up in the general, general temple area in one of the uh, porches but at this point, he's, his conversation has moved over into the treasury area where people, and this is not the only time Jesus was up there around the treasury, but he's teaching in the temple, but nobody arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And then it goes, and then again, he says to them, now this is going to either just move a few minutes or maybe move a little bit later in the day. Some more time has passed. So when you read that, that conversation, that's a conversation that he has with those people. He has a conversation with the woman, with them about the woman adultery. Some time passes. He has his next conversation that goes from verse 12 down through verse 20. And then this next conversation picks up in verse 21. And this would be the third conversation he's had with these people in the temple during this day. Okay, so three times during this day, he's talked to some people. And therefore, he said to them, I go away and you will seek me and you will die in your sins uh, and you will die, um, yeah, you and yeah, and you will die in your sin. Where I go away, you are not able to come. Okay, I was getting this confused with another verse. Sorry. And therefore, the Jews said to him, "Well, he surely isn't going to kill himself, is he? Where is he going to go away that we're not able to come to?" In other words, they're trying to make sense. Earlier, they said he's not going to the Gentiles, is he, or to the Greek-speaking Jews, is he? That was one of the things that they had concluded earlier when he says, "I'm going away, and you can't come." Verse 23, and he was saying to them, you, you are from below. I am from above. You are from this world. I am not from this world. Therefore, I said to you, you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. 
Now, if you were talking to a person today, you would have to tell them, you will die in your sins if you do not yeah. Yeah. If if a person does not believe Jesus died for died on the cross for their sins, he was buried, he rose from <laughs> if they do not believe that message for their salvation, you would say they're going to die in their sins. But when Jesus walked the earth, that was not the message that he proclaimed, and that was not the message the disciples claimed. In fact, when he sent the disciples out earlier, he told them to pre present the gospel of the kingdom. And when he tells them about his death and resurrection, it says the disciples didn't understand what he was even talking about. So that was not the message they were talking about. What they had to believe, what these Jews had to believe, was they had to look at this man, Jesus, that's standing there. That he doesn't shine. He doesn't have a halo over his head. He just looked like a normal person. Okay? Could have been, if he would have come in our culture today, he, would have, he could have come in here dressed and looked like any one of us in here. Well, any, any of the guys in here, because he was a man. He would have been like us. He didn't dress in an abnormal fashion uh, or anything like that. He didn't walk, you know, an inch or two off the ground. Uh, he was just a normal person. But they had to look at him, and because of what he said and because of the miracles he did, they were supposed to say, he's not just a man, he's God. He's God. They had to be able to say, you're God. That's what he says. If you do not believe that, I am. Now, some of your Bibles say, I am he. They add the word he. There is no he in the text. That would be a what we call a predicate complement. You know, when you have something where it says this is what? You're waiting for something. You have to have a complement. You don't need a predicate complement when you're talking about the name of God that says I exist. I am. And so what they had to do was they had to believe that I am. If you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And they were therefore saying to them, who are you? And Jesus said to them, <laughs> Jesus said to them, why, um, why should I ask you? I have said many things to you uh, to speak about you and to judge. And the one having sent me is true. Uh, and the things which I have heard from him, these are the things that I speak in the world. In other words, he's telling him, I'm not, and he says this many times in the gospel of John. He doesn't speak from himself. He speaks exactly what he's heard from the father. He's always doing the father's will. And they did not know that he was speaking to them about the Father. And therefore, Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, what does that mean, lift up the Son of Man? On the cross. When they lift him up and put him up on the cross, when, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am and that I do nothing from myself. What's the best example when they lifted him up on the cross that somebody knew that I am? Because did everybody know that? No, the other guys, a lot of the Pharisees, they're going around there saying, you saved others, you did that, save yourself. John Wayne. Thank you, John Wayne. What is John Wayne? He plays the, the centurion. And he's the centurion that the gospel says when the sky grows dark and he sees everything, he says, truly this one was son of God. He's a Roman soldier, and he gets it. <laughs> he puts it together. He's able to see who Jesus really is. John Wayne played that character in a movie. So, uh, at the crucifixion. Anybody, did Dan Dalkey ever do John Wayne for you, the centurion? <laughs> and and Dan, Dan could channel a pretty good John Wayne, too. Man, anyway, okay. Back to the main point here. Um, um, so, verse 28, Therefore he said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, 
and that I do nothing for myself, but even as the Father taught me, these are the things that I speak. And this does not, he's not in any way, he keeps saying that I am, so he's God. So he's not in any way saying, I, I can't, I, I can't, I can't possibly do these things without the Father because, well, he's God and I'm kind of like a little God. No, he's just saying everything I do is always what the Father's will is. Even in his hum this human nature that walked down here, even though he's God in flesh, he's always obeying the Father. Go over to Hebrews chapter 5 and it tells you even though he was a son, he learned obedience. Normally you'd say, hey, if you are a son, you don't have to obey. Point, case in point. There was, a, there was a point in time in Josh's life where when his dad said, you need to do this, that Josh had to obey or there would have been a consequence. But at this point, if his dad says, Josh, you ought to do this, Josh doesn't have to do that anymore because he's now at the level in their culture where you would, well, but you came to that level long ago, where he became a son, and as a result of being a son at that level of maturity, you're on an equal plane, and you don't, you don't, you're not required to obey. You can actually then make decisions for yourself. That doesn't mean he might not want to do what his dad says. He might take that really into account, but there's just, understand that difference, and that's exactly the point that Paul makes in Hebrews 5. Christ learned obedience by obeying the Father in the midst of suffering, okay? And so Jesus is obeying the Father. Verse 29, the one that sent me, he has not abandoned me, does not leave me alone, because I always do the things that please him. In other words, everything that the Son did, there was never a time that the Son knocked heads with the Father. Even when it came down to going uh, to the cross and facing it, not knowing the, t the length of time that he was going to be suffering separation from the Father, not knowing how long that was going to last. Even as he's facing that, the son does not stand there and say, Dad, I don't want to do this. No, he says, whatever you want. He says, not what I want, but what you want. Okay. Verse 30. These things he was saying, and many believed into him. Now, it is amazing when you come to those verses, and we went over these last year or something when we were talking about faith uh, in our morning study. It's amazing how many people come to this and go, well, they didn't really believe. They, they kind of believed, but it wasn't real faith. Hey, if John says a person believed, John, John is, John's the gospel of belief. And he says a person believed, you better say he believed. And therefore, Jesus said to those that were believing him, to those Jews, if you abide in my word, you really are my disciples. In other words, you, you're really going to go on and really be my disciples if my word, if you abide in what the things that I've said, if you're at ease with what I have said here. Verse 32, and here's the promise now. Here's the promise for you and I that, that's embedded in this text that really affects you and I. And you will, future, know the truth and the truth will free you. What is the truth? What is the truth? The truth is that when Christ dies on the cross, one of the things that he bears when he dies on the cross is my, are my acts of sins. We get that. But he also bore our sin nature, the very reason we sin, that we come into this world corrupt and fallen. And he, he became a sinner on the cross. God counted not just my bad things I do, 
but my very fallen sinful nature, he counted that to Jesus on the cross. And so when my sin nature rears its head, I can say, I am dead to the sin nature, but I'm alive unto God because I'm in Christ. Let's, let's go look at this. Let's go look over in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. Verse 1 says, what shall we say then? Should we continue or be comfortable or at ease in the sin nature? He's talking about our fallen nature. I'm sorry, we're going to wait because I want you to be able to see these verses with us. Did you find it? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Peggy usually points out when somebody's not there and reminds me to slow up. I don't always pay attention where everybody is. So we're there. Okay, Romans 6.1. Therefore, what shall we say? Shall we continue or shall we be at ease in the, the sin, referring to what we would call the, the sin nature, okay, the sin nature, so that grace might increase? Because he just got done saying, you know, when your sin nature abounds, when your sin nature overflows, when it's really active, grace, God's grace is hyperactive, okay? And so he says, let it never be, verse two. We who died, we who died to the sin, referring to the sin nature, how shall we still live in it? Or are you ignorant that as many of us as were baptized into Christ? Now let's use Josh's, I'm gonna tip this up here so people can see if they're following along here. So this, this arrow is indicating this is us down here, this little guy running. And this is us. And this baptism puts us, this puts us into Christ. This is not water baptism. There's not a drop of water involved in this. This happened the very minute you believed that the Holy Spirit took and put you into Christ. And in the mind of God, in the mind of God the Father, he looks at his right where the sun sits and he says, I, the minute I believed, September 1969, Tim Holsher just believed in you. I am counting him to be in you right now. July, 1980, right? August, 1980. <laughs> Peggy Brown just believed in you. I'm counting her to be in you. And he did that with each and every one of us at the very instant that we believed in Jesus Christ. He counted us to be in Christ. And he counts us right now in Christ. And when he counts us to be in Christ, it says right here in verse, verse 3, are you ignorant that as many of us as were baptized, or just to put it in simple terms, were put into Christ Jesus, we were put into his death. One of the things he counts you and I to sharing is in the death of Christ. He counts us to have been crucified. Paul says that in Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ, Paul says. Paul didn't feel spikes going through his arms. God counts him in Christ. This, this is like the foundation truth of the whole Christian life is understanding who God says we are in Christ. If you never get this, you'll never understand the Christian life. I got saved in 1969, and it was not until 1984. Think about that. That is 
15 years, right? If I'm doing my, if I do math, I sound like a math idiot here trying to go, oh, well, what was that? About 15 years, I'm a Christian. And I don't ever remember hearing anybody teach me about this. I'm not saying they didn't. They might have been teaching it, and I might have been sitting there going, oh, the ceiling tiles are pretty. I don't know. Could have happened. I'm just saying, as a kid growing up, I was usually pretty attentive in church. I, I've told you this before. I had notebooks. I would fill my notebooks with notes on what the pastors taught. I started doing that when I was in third grade. I did that all the way third grade through my junior year. And then we had a pastor that didn't teach so well, and it was boring trying to write anything down. And so I kind of quit. But uh, so I paid attention to a lot of things. So I don't know if I was taught it or not, but it was it was actually in the summer of 1984 when I was just really frustrated that for the first time I learned what it was to be in Christ. And it just turned my world upside down in a really good way. Maybe it turned it right side up. Let's put it that way. It's the only time I did a, hand, a, head, a handstand or headstand was back then. So he says, as many as were baptized or put into Christ, you were put into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. So just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we can walk in newness of life. And this, we're also raised with Christ. God counts us not just to have died to the sin nature, but to be raised with Christ so that we can walk in newness of life. And so what does he tell us to do? Go to verse 11 here. This is what he says. This is your responsibility now. In the same way, you logically count yourselves to be dead ones to the sin, referring to the sin nature, but living ones to God in Christ Jesus. When your sin nature rears, my sin nature reared its head, I'm going to say three or four times today that I can remember right now. And one time I was like, yep, that's, I'm going to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to do that. And then I was like, no. I'm dead to the sin nature, God. You freed me from that. I don't need to respond like this. I don't need to act like this because I'm alive unto you in Christ. I don't know if you guys have days like that, but I'm going to say that that probably happened to me about three or four times today that I had to deal with that. Some days, barely at all. But some days, oh yeah, three or four times, maybe more. But I can say I'm dead to the sin nature and I'm alive in a I don't always Sometimes my sin nature goes, hey, do this. And I'm like, mm-hmm. And, and you can ask my wife. There are times that I can just be downright stinker because I do what my sin nature wants to do. And rather than counting myself dead to the sin nature, I go ahead and do that. This, by the way, this is a major component. Go back over there to John 8 now. This is a major component, John 8, verse 32. We're going back to John 8, 32. This is a major component of the truth. Now, I don't think any of these people would have understood what Jesus meant here, and he tells them that. He says, you will in the future know the truth. He doesn't say you're going to know it now, but he says out there in the future. Because, see, these people didn't know Jesus was going to die, and they didn't know that God was going to count them to be in, his, in the death of Jesus Christ if they believed. So you will know the truth, and the truth will free you. Okay. Free you from what? Well, verse 33. And they said to him, we are the seed of Abraham. Now, who's answering him, by the way? This is where... What? Okay. In this context, it says in verse 30 that many believed in him. 
It says in verse 31 that Jesus is speaking to the Jews that believed in him. Okay, so let me... So that verse breaks it into two groups. Let, let me... I can do this without drawing this on a board. We've got all this, these group of people here. Jesus is talking to them, and there are, it says, and many believed in him. So you got all these people. So let's say these believe in him. It does not say that Jesus grabs them, takes them away over here, and then tells them, hey, if you stick with my word and be at ease, then, then you'll know the truth in the future and free you. No, he's just, he's talking to these guys. Who answers? Not these guys. It's these guys over here. What's evident is these people don't believe. And that's why there's lots of people that come to this passage and go, oh, clearly they didn't believe. John said they believed, but they really didn't believe because their answer shows that they didn't. No, they believe. It's just that the people that are answering are the unbelievers in the crowd. And you're going to see these unbelievers in the rest of this passage. Okay? And there are commentators that are just, they're, they're kind of like me. They're, they just are incredulous that there are people that, that come and go, oh, well, they obviously couldn't have been believed. No, we look at it and say, no, they believe. John tells us that. So this is how they answer, verse 33. And they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants. We have never been enslaved ever. They were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. They were under the heel of Rome at this time. They'd been under the heel of the Babylonians. They'd been carried away into captivity in Babylon. And then they were under the rule of the Persians and the Medes. And then when they returned to the land, eventually they were under the rule of the Greeks. And there were many times in the book of Judges that because they disobeyed God, God sold them into slavery. He gave them to other nations. They're lying. Either that or they don't know their own history. It's amazing when you're upset how easy it is for people that should know better to say stupid things. Okay, so they said, we've never been enslaved. So how do you say that we'll be free? Well, Jesus is not talking about slavery to a group of men. What does he say in verse 34? Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone doing the sin is a slave of the sin. In other words, when you are doing what the sin nature wants you to do, he says, you're a slave of the sin nature. Implying what? That the freedom that he's talking about is freedom from slavery to the sin nature. See, if you're here as a believer in Jesus Christ, you have by God been got by God, by the work of Jesus Christ, you have been given freedom from your sin nature. Now you can choose whether to enjoy that freedom or do what the sin nature says and act like a slave. You get that choice. You can go read Romans 6, and Paul talks about that there. Verse 34, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone doing this sin is a slave of the sin. But the slave, he, is, he does not abide, or he is not at ease in the house into the age. The son stays in the age. Therefore, if the son frees you, you really are free. So you really are free. Now, the whole point of this, Jesus has this conversation with these, with these people back in the first verses of John 8, where there's a woman that they bring to him caught in an act of adultery. And as he's expressing grace, he says, I don't condemn you. He says, okay, if you guys are sinless, whoever's sinless, go ahead. You be the first one to throw a stone at her. Well, apparently none of them, they all recognize none of them are sinless because <laughs> none of us are. And then he, when he turns to the woman, he says, I don't condemn you. 
but go and sin no more. See, that's what grace calls us to do. Grace calls us to say, I died with Christ to the sin nature. Now, that woman wouldn't have understood that at that time. But if she believed in Jesus, she could come to know that, just like he's talking to these people. She could come to know the truth. And she could come to actually experience that freedom. I'd like to think she did, but we don't know. John doesn't tell us what she does. But he's a demonstration of grace, that this is what grace says. Grace says, you died with Christ says, I, I am, my death is being counted to you that you shared in that death because you're in me. And as a result, you get to experience freedom, real freedom that the Son frees you with. That's what this is about. We could spend a lot of time going through the balance of this chapter because um, there's a lot of other things. Jesus is talking to them. I, I, I think some other... Um, can I just read? I'll just try to read the English, and I'll try to avoid the Greek, and I want to read through the balance of this, and maybe we'll sit on a couple of things. Uh, verse 37, I know that you are the descendants of Abraham, yet you look for an opportunity to kill me because there's no place for you, or place in you for my word. I declare what I have seen in the Father's presence. As for you, you shall do what you have heard from the Father. And they answered, Abraham's our father, and Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you are trying to kill me, a man who told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. What do you mean this is not what Abraham did? When did, when did Abraham hear God the Son come and speak to him, and he didn't try to kill him? That's right. That's right. When he comes down there and he says, and he says, hey, should we tell Abraham what we're going to do? Abraham's going to be the father of a great nation. We shouldn't hide from him what we're going to do here. And so he tells him that they're going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham doesn't get angry with him. In fact, if anything, Abraham's like, hey, can I talk to you about this? Oh, I'm sorry. Let me ask one more question. This is Abraham. But he says, that's the way Abraham responded. Now, they don't get it right away, but they're going to get it before he's done. You are indeed going, doing what your father does. And they said, we are not illegitimate children. Now, what they're implying is, is the knowledge, the kind of the popular public knowledge among these people was, is that Jesus was Mary's son, maybe not Joseph's. Okay, so that's why they're calling him, we're not illegitimate. We have one father, God himself, implying one father, meaning you got two dads. You got whoever your real dad was, and then Joseph, that's not your dad. And this is, you're trying to see, this is not the only time in the Gospel of John that this issue is brought up. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, now, uh, and now I am here. I did not come on my own, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot receive my word. You Oh, here it is. Here's the punch. You are from your father, the devil. He apparently did not read that book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. You don't, you don't just kick him in the shins like this, but Jesus tells him what it is. Because remember, he, is, he demonstrates grace and truth. So he identifies what they did. He doesn't make an excuse. He says, you're from your father, the devil. And you choose or desire to do your father's desires. He was a, now my Bible says a murderer from the beginning. That's not the word that he uses here. It's a word meaning a manslayer. And I've illustrated it just to make sure we're clear what a manslayer is different than a murderer. 
A murderer is a person that goes, I'm angry and I'm furious at you and I reach in and I pull out my gun and I shoot you dead. That would be a murderer. There's something maybe premeditated, maybe it's a crime of passion. Manslaughter is the guy that goes to the bar or a party and he drinks to excess, gets in his car, fires it up. He's, if he, he ought to know, I should not be driving. I'm impaired. And he takes off down the road and he hits somebody on the side of the road and kills them or runs into their car and kills them. What do they call that? They call that manslaughter. And that's what Satan is doing. In other words, Satan doesn't care about anybody but himself. He didn't care about Adam and Eve. He wasn't there in the garden saying, oh, I would like to help you guys know a secret that God's keeping from you. No, this is all about him when he's in the garden. And so he says, he's a manslayer. In other words, People die because he doesn't really care about them. And if they die in the process, he doesn't care. That's not his problem. Okay? And he says, that's the way you guys are. They looked at Jesus as somebody they wanted to get rid of because he was just in their way. Stated another way, would it be that he didn't intend for them to die? It was just a byproduct of his deception. Sure. Because God said that they would die, but I don't think Satan knew what death was because Satan's a spiritual being. He doesn't experience death like humans do. <laughs> we all know what death is. I feel, I feel death every day. <laughs> you know what I mean? Every day I've got cricks and pops and things like things, and you're just going, nah, see, we're, we're breaking down. See? So you're talking about death as Well, I think he's talking both about physically dying as well as dying spiritually. Both deaths are involved in that, yes. See, I don't know if you knew this here, but when God said to Adam and Eve, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he said, literally, dying, that happened right away, you shall die. So it was you're going to die spiritually right away, which would bring spiritual death. Yeah. So, you know, it's, uh, unless you can see in the original languages, it just says that if you eat the fruit, you'll, you'll die. But it literally says, dying, thou shalt die. So when Adam came back, Eve had already died. Her, she was stripped of her glory. Then he ate from the fruit. He was stripped of his glory. Then they both died physically sometime after. Mm-hmm. Long time after that. Long time. For them, yeah. So he says, Satan, he says, or the devil, he's a manslayer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. And when he lies, he's, uh, um, no, excuse me. And whenever he speaks the lie, it's not when he lies, but whenever he speaks the lie, the lie is what Satan told Adam and Eve in the garden. It's what he told the spirit beings. And it's what he said. I'm going to be like God. He told Adam and Eve, you eat the fruit, you can be like God. Essentially, you can do what only God can do. Namely, you can, you can plan your life for yourself. And you know what? Any, any person that has paid any attention to their life as a Christian ought to realize no matter how many plans you make for yourself, you really can't plan. Because you have no idea what the next breath is going to come in. Remember James, when James says, you ought to say, you ought not to say, oh, we're going to go set up a business and get gained. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll do that. <coughs> but you don't even know what the next moment holds. So how can you plan what you're going to do next year? You can't plan that. But that's what we do. 
And we as Christians are as guilty of that as unsaved people. But that's the essence of the lie, is that we can we can be God. We can decide things for ourselves. We can be our own masters. He says, he speaks from his own things because he is a liar and he's the father of it. That is the father of the lie. But I, because I speak the truth, you don't believe in me. Who among you reproves me or can prove that I'm guilty of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? The one being from God, he hears the utterances from God. Therefore, you do therefore, because you do not hear them, you are or you do not hear because you are not from God. I got to read in the Greek text again. I'm sorry, verse 48, <laughs> trying to stick with the Greek to move on. The Jews answered him, Are we not right, saying you're a Samaritan and you have a demon? And Jesus said, I don't have a demon. In other words, they're saying this because they can't believe he's making these accusations against them because they all are thinking, we're, we're great. How could you accuse us of that? The only thing is you must be a Samaritan or you got a demon. Jesus says, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There's one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly I tell you, whoever keeps my word, that one will not see death. And I'm probably talking here about spiritual death is what he's getting at. The Jews said to him, well, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, so did our prophets, and yet you say whoever keeps the word will not taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets also died? So who do you think you are? And Jesus said, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, he of whom you say he's our God. In other words, you, you claim him to be your God, but he, he says he's my Father. Though you do not know him, but I know him, and if I should say I don't know him, then I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. And it's interesting, when he's talking about knowing him, he starts with the word gnosko, experience you know, but then he switches to oida, I've got plain, clear, objective knowledge of him. I can tell you exactly what he's like, and it's clear. It's not just that I've watched. It's that I actually know this, okay? So verse 56, your father Abraham was glad or giddy that he should see my day, and he saw it and rejoiced. And then the Jews said to him, you're not even yet 50 years old. And you have seen Abraham? Here it is, the last punch. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham came to be, he doesn't say I was, he says I am. That's a good place to demonstrate the significance of I am. The I am, when Jesus says he's the I am, when God says he's the I am, it's not that I was there or I will be, it's that I always am unchanging. I can say I am now, and it's no different than it was when I when Abraham existed or when something else will exist in the future. He's always who he is. He's always the I am. And so they picked up stones to throw at him. Remember, Jesus said, you're trying to kill me. <laughs> well, they are now, because again, they recognize plainly that he's calling himself God, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. It's kind of like he did him three times in your out. Because he said, I am, in verse 24, mm -hmm. 28, and 58, and mm -hmm. then they didn't kill him. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was a dog food commercial. A dog food commercial? Shut up, family. <laughs> we don't watch commercials.
sheep in our house today. You won't help me. <laughs> so anyway, chapter eight. Chapter eight is really foundational. If you, it, I, I was planning as we're going through to get to the upper room, I really wanted to kind of just focus on Jesus's signs. But chapter eight is one of those passages I think you need to go through because Jesus really demonstrates grace in that opening interaction. And then these these two interactions afterwards with these groups of people, you see how Jesus is emphasizing who he is and how they react to that. But in the middle of that, you have some people that believe. Even in the midst of all this opposition, you're going to have people that are going to believe. Which is interesting because that, again, is one of the things he's going to get at in the upper room. <laughs> Just because you believe doesn't mean everything goes hunky-dory. You're going to find you're going to believe and there's people that are still going to just be furious with you over that. And so, but he says, but I promise you, you can know the truth in the future and you're going to experience real freedom. And that's all background for what he's going to get to when we get over to the, uh, to the upper room. And if you don't understand these things... Um, the upper room will make less sense. You know, when you get to the end of the book, the author expects that you went, read through the whole book and you're going, who is this guy that killed the person in the mystery? I don't even know who that character was. That's because I skipped over all the middle of the book where they introduced that character, you know. Uh, he expects you've read through this whole thing before you get to the upper room. And uh, so all of it creates some background for us. Any other comments? Okay. With that, we'll pause this.